Pelosi, having already decided that Jewish people not trouble Gentiles by demanding that they be circumcised, James now is also concerned that the Gentile believers not trouble Jewish people by the way that they behave. And so he proposes that the council write the Gentile Christians a letter telling them to abstain from these four very specific practices. For the people around us, our behavior and choices can be either a building stone or a stumbling block. In Acts 15, after the Apostle James expressed his agreement that Gentiles and Jews alike are saved by grace and not by our works, he said that the Jewish believers should not burden the Gentiles with keeping the Mosaic Law. But then he went on to say that the Gentiles, in turn, should not do things that will offend the Jewish believers. And that's where we find ourselves today on Verse by Verse, as Pastor Steve Kreloff begins another message in his series about what is necessary for salvation. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. His expository teaching style takes us through the Bible without skipping a single verse, which is how this ministry got its name. Acts chapter 15 is a critically important chapter because it deals with the first ever church council where the apostles stood squarely opposed to every works-based religion that has ever tried to pervert the truly good news that the blood of Jesus Christ paid our debt in full. I invite you to follow along in your Bible if you can. Here's Pastor Steve. This morning as we continue our study of the book of Acts and then we will observe the Lord's Supper, I want to remind you that last week we were listening to the speech given by James to the Jerusalem Council when time ran out. But in the time that we did have, we learned that James, the moderator, the chairman of the Jerusalem Council, and a man noted for his godliness, he did exactly what Peter did. He did exactly what Paul and Barnabas did in their speeches, which preceded his. What did he do? He defended the truth of the gospel by arguing that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ for salvation and his death on the cross without any works of the law added to it. That is the essence of the speech that James gave. And the reason all of these men were even in a position, even had to give speeches like this, defining and defending the gospel, is because prior to this, certain men, false teachers from the church at Jerusalem, had come to the predominantly Gentile church in Antioch, Syria, and there they began teaching the people of that church that Gentile believers in Jesus could not be saved, they said. Could not be saved unless they first submitted themselves to the Mosaic law, the right of circumcision. Essentially then, meaning that Gentiles had to first become Jewish in order to be made right with God and receive the forgiveness of their sins. That is to say, they had to enter into the covenant that God made with Israel. They had to become Jewish, and the way of entrance was circumcision. And when this teaching then came to the attention of the Apostle Paul and to Barnabas, who were pastors at that time in the church at Antioch, they strongly disagreed with these men from Jerusalem, and they debated them. And when they could not resolve this issue at the local church level, then the church at Antioch decided to send a delegation of men, including Paul and Barnabas, up to Jerusalem in order for the apostles and the elders of that church to settle the matter 
and to decide once and for all which teaching was right. Was someone saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ or did they have to do something as a supplement to faith in order to be saved? And so the Jerusalem Council was formed. And as I've been emphasizing over the last few weeks, this was not only the first church council to ever convene, but it also was the most important church council to ever convene because it addressed the most important question that can ever be asked in this lifetime. How is a sinner made right with God? How does God save a lost sinner? Does he save a sinner on the basis of faith alone in Christ or on the basis of believing in Christ plus doing something, whether it be a religious ritual or a, or a good deed or whatever? Listen, there is no greater, there is no more significant question that anyone can ever ask because the stakes are just so high. You see, heaven and hell hang in the balance based on this one question of how is a person saved? How does God deliver them from the penalty of their sins? If God saves solely by his grace apart from works and you have personally trusted Christ alone for your salvation, then you will spend eternity with him in heaven. That is God's promise to you. But if you think that you must somehow earn your way to heaven by something that you can do, then you will tragically, the Bible teaches, end up in hell. Because you can never do enough good things to earn God's favor, nor can you ever do enough good things to remove the penalty of your myriad of sins. Your debt, my debt, is just too great. This is why we've spent so many weeks covering these verses in Acts 15, because it's critical that you understand exactly how to go to heaven. It is solely by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. You see, unlike the first century congregation at Antioch, who really only had a few false teachers, a few men to contend with, that's not true today. We live in a day and age in which there are many religious voices shouting out to you, shouting out to me, a false gospel of salvation by works. So, for example, within the sphere of what we would call Christendom, there is Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and some Protestant denominations, all teaching a message of salvation by works. All. And then there are all the other religions outside of Christendom that teach a works-oriented type of salvation. All of these religions prescribe a code that they say you must follow if you ever hope to make it to a better world when you die. And surprisingly, these religions continue to say this in spite of the fact that the Jerusalem Council settled this issue over 2,000 years ago. And God used the three speeches given by Peter, then Paul and Barnabas, and now James, to bring the council to their decision. Now, last week we began to look at the speech that James made, and in it we saw that he actually presents two irrefutable arguments that salvation is by faith alone. And when I say faith alone, I mean grace alone. I'm using those terms synonymously. So, 
The first argument that James gives is found in verse 14. He says, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. Calling him by his Jewish name, Simeon, James reminds the council of the speech that Peter had just given to them, in which he told them how God had used him, God had used Peter, Simeon, in the conversion of Gentile Cornelius and his family years earlier. And listen, the point that James is making is so obvious and yet remarkably missed by those who advocated that Gentiles need to keep the law to be saved, because what James is, is telling them is this. There is no need to debate this question anymore concerning how a Gentile is saved. Because God has already given the answer. And he did it when he saved Cornelius and his family by grace and not by law. In other words, the fact that God previously saved Cornelius and his family without them having to observe the Mosaic law first proves that this is the way that God saves every Gentile. He's done it already this way. End of debate. So experience, specifically the experience of those first Gentiles who believed on Christ, it demonstrated already that it's by God's grace that salvation comes, apart from any works that we do. But there's still a second argument that James gives to prove his point, and that is that the Old Testament scriptures support the truth that God saves Gentiles by faith, not by works. And so we read in verses 15 through 18, with this, he says, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Now, as we discovered last week, this is a quote from the Old Testament prophet Amos, specifically Amos chapter 9. Verses 11 and 12. But James, notice, he says that all the Old Testament prophets are in agreement with what Amos says. And note this, what they say, all the prophets say, is in agreement, James is saying, with what Peter just said God did with Cornelius and his family. And what is that? Call Gentiles to himself and save them by grace alone through faith. You see, the essential message, the gist of this prophecy from Amos is that although there would come a day in Israel's history when the temple would be destroyed along with David's kingly line, which did happen when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and David's dynasty collapsed with it, the prophecy is that both the temple and David's kingly line would in time be restored. And both of these were restored. The temple was rebuilt, and when Jesus Christ, the son of David, was raised from the dead, and he was exalted as Lord, so that now, in these days, his lordship extends beyond Israel, beyond the Jewish people, to include the believing Gentiles of the world. And God, during this age, which we commonly call and refer to as the church era, church age era, God is now calling Gentiles to come to him and enter his kingdom exactly the same way that Cornelius and his Gentile family entered his kingdom a few years earlier. And how is that? By faith alone in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So these are the two arguments 
that James puts forth to the council. That Gentiles have already been saved on the basis of faith alone. And what happened to them is in accord with what the prophets predicted would happen when he called other Gentiles to come to him for salvation. They would come. And they would be saved the same way that he saved Cornelius. By grace through faith and not by the works of the Mosaic law or any works that anybody could ever do. And having made these two points, folks, James then gives his opinion and conviction and judgment as to what the council should do. And so he says in verse 19, Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. And what James means by this statement is that based on all he has said in his speech, his conclusion is that the Gentiles who are turning to Jesus Christ should not be troubled any longer by those who say they need to be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law for salvation. That is to say, he is stating the same thing that Peter said, the same thing that Paul and Barnabas said, that Gentiles are saved by faith alone. But as I told you last week, having made this conclusion about the issue of salvation, James doesn't stop here. We did, but James moves on. And what he does is he proceeds to recommend that the council write a letter to these Gentile Christians, giving them some practical advice about how to conduct themselves amongst Jewish people in their society, both believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. And specifically, what he does is advise these Gentiles to abstain from certain practices that might offend Jewish people. Now, this is where we left off last week, and so we pick things up in verse 20. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, James mentions here four practices that he feels the Gentile believers of his day should abstain from. Before we look at these four practices, I want you to see the reason that James gives for making this recommendation. And that's all he's doing is making a recommendation to the council. They will take heed to his recommendation, but at this point, he's making a recommendation. And here's the reason why. Verse 21. For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues Every Sabbath. Now, James says here that the reason that he doesn't want Gentile Christians to be involved in these four practices has to do with the fact that these practices are forbidden by Moses. That is to say, the Mosaic law forbids them. And since Jewish people are aware that they are forbidden because why? The law of Moses is read every Sabbath or every Saturday in synagogue services all over the world. So for Gentile Christians then to disregard these prohibited practices would be to needlessly offend Jewish people, which would hinder their witness to those Jews who are unsaved, as well as hinder their fellowship with those Jews who are saved. You see, having already decided that Jewish people not trouble Gentiles by demanding that they be circumcised, James now is also concerned that the Gentile believers not trouble Jewish people by the way that they behave. And so he proposes that the council write the Gentile Christians a letter telling them to abstain from these 
four very specific practices. Number one, practice number one, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, meaning that they should not eat any food that had been offered to an idol. An idol is a false god. You see, in the ancient world, pagan Gentiles would worship their false deities by ritual ceremonies that involved offering food that would be set before an idol. But when the ceremony was over, the pagan priest would then take the food that had been offered to an idol and they would bring that food to the marketplace of their town and sell it and make a profit. And it's this food that had once been offered to an idol that James is saying that Gentile Christians should abstain from eating. Now, very clearly, the Old Testament forbids any kind of idolatry, which is the worship of a false god. At the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, we read this in Exodus 20, verses 2 through 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, based on these words, it's very clear that God forbids all forms of idol worship. However, and it is a big however, the Old Testament doesn't say anything about eating food sacrificed to an idol. Just that the worship of an idol is wrong. And so the reason for James recommending that Gentile Christians abstain from foods that have been offered to an idol wasn't because it violated any Old Testament law, because it really didn't. Nor was there anything inherently wrong with the food itself. It was perfectly good food and somebody needed to eat it or it would go to waste. Now, the eating of foods offered to an idol, that was a huge issue In the early church, should they eat such food or abstain from it? And it was a huge issue largely because the Bible was silent on the subject and therefore believers needed some direction as to what to do. That's exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14. In these chapters, the apostle Paul goes to great lengths to stress that eating food that had been offered to an idol was an issue that wasn't commanded by God, nor was it condemned by God in Scripture, so that it was left up to an individual believer to decide if he was going to eat this food or not. And since Scripture was silent on the issue, the determining factor as to whether or not to eat food that had been sacrificed to an idol was to be based upon a believer's Conscience, that is your inward moral monitor. You see, some Christians in that day and age would have no problem eating this food, meaning that their conscience wouldn't bother them at all. And so they felt free to eat it. If they ate it, that's fine. It's good food. But other believers, based on their background, based on their upbringing, would not have the freedom in their conscience, to eat any food sacrificed to an idol. Why? Because it felt to them that they they were now going backwards and participating in idolatry, their former way of life. And so Paul makes it clear that they should, if you feel this way, 
then abstain. Because one should never, ever, ever violate your conscience. And so we read 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 8. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Paul is simply setting forth here the principle that some believers have a weak Conscience when it comes to anything associated with their past life of idolatry. And so they should not eat any food that had been sacrificed to an idol because that would, he says, defile their conscience. But Paul makes it clear that no matter what they choose to do, eat the food or abstain, the fact remains that as far as the food itself is concerned, it makes no difference to God if it was offered to an idol or not. It doesn't make a believer more spiritual if he eats Food that had been sacrificed to an idol or if he refrains from this food. And the point that James at the council is now making to the Jerusalem council is that even if a Gentile Christian has a clear conscience to eat food sacrificed to an idol, he should abstain from it for the time being. Why? Because it would be offensive to the Jewish people of that day who abhorred anything associated with idolatry and therefore it would just show a lack of love, a lack of sensitivity towards them. That's the first principle. That's the first thing James has abstained from. Second practice James proposes that Gentile believers abstain from is fornication, meaning sexual immorality, which includes any kind of sex outside of legitimate marriage as prescribed by Scripture. Now, unlike abstaining from food offered to an idol, immorality... That's not a conscience issue left up to individuals to decide what to do. It's clearly forbidden in Scripture. Now, the most likely reason that James included sexual immorality in this list is simply because sexual sins were such an integral part of pagan worship ceremonies with temple priestesses serving as prostitutes that James wants Gentile believers to be especially careful to avoid This sin, In other words, it it had been such a normal part of their pre-conversion lives that they need to pay special attention that they don't fall back into it. That's the second thing they're to abstain from. Third practice that James proposes that Gentile Christians abstain from is eating food that had been strangled. And this is a reference to a law in the Old Testament forbidding Jewish people from eating any meat from an animal that had been killed by being strangled rather than being properly butchered and its blood completely drained. So far, we've reviewed three of the four practices that James said the Gentile believers should avoid. They are eating food that has been offered to idols, engaging in immoral sexual activities, and eating the flesh of animals that had been strangled. Pastor Steve will move on to that fourth practice when we meet again. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you'd like to stop in for a visit some Sunday, you can get service times and directions at the website, lakesidechapel.com, or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. That's lakesidechapel.com or 727-441-1714. If you've missed any programs in this series about what is necessary for salvation, it's easy to catch up at our website, versebyverseradio.org. 
click on the link to the message archive page, and then scroll to or search for the date that you need. And there's also a giving link if listening to Verse by Verse has been a blessing. And it's a great help to us in defraying the expenses of airtime and other costs. Thanks for your gifts and for your prayers. The web address, once again, is versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. There's an old saying that says that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. The Apostle Paul told us the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10.23. He said, in part, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. Next time on Verse by Verse, as Pastor Steve continues this series about what is necessary for salvation, we'll resume our consideration of the importance of self-restraint when it comes to our liberty in Christ. Christ. 